Hello, and thank you for joining us for our conversation today at Zocalo Public Square. I'm Dr. Cynthia Greenlee, and I'm a journalist and independent historian based in North Carolina. My journalistic and historical work focuses on the legal history of African Americans after the Civil War, and I also write extensively about race, history, and reproductive health. But today here, I'm talking about somebody else's writing, talking with the author, Eduardo Porter, who is an economics reporter at the New York Times. He's recently published a book, American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise, studying how racism and racial animus have destroyed empathy, stunting the US social contract, and undermining the social safety net, and in the end, impoverishing the entire nation. So thank you all for joining us out there on Twitter, and thank you, Eduardo, for being here. It's really Thank nice. You, Cynthia. It's lovely okay. to be here. Lovely. All right. So let's just hop right in it, right? So, you know, of course I've read this book and the book is a really thoughtful, accessible crash course and how we kind of arrived at this moment of huh, political catastrophe where civil discourse seems pretty dead in the water and where, you know, racist dog whistles can be heard constantly and at all frequencies. Like everyone can hear them. I mean, it's hard not to hear them, right? Yeah, Unless yeah. you're politically aligned with the whistlers. So, you know, I wanted to start though and ask you about something more personal that uh, a passage in the book that really stuck with me. And there's this anecdote very early in the book about your young son saying to you after the 2016 election, you know, maybe we shouldn't speak Spanish in public anymore. And, you know, th that was so gut-riching and really kind of set the stage for the rest of the book. And I wanted to ask you, like, what did that moment mean to you? I mean, that was a stunning moment. And I think that my first reaction was enormous anger. Um, yes, we were writing, it was in fact the day after the election in November of 2016. And we were writing in a packed subway as they were back then. And, um, and we normally talk in Spanish because I'm, you know, I'm Mexican American. And I speak in Spanish at home, hoping that my son, you know, kind of like sucks it in and speaks Spanish as well and sucks in his Mexican side. And um, and when we were speaking in Spanish, well, evidently he was very aware of the new situation in our politics because um, suddenly you could see fear in his eyes, you know, suddenly feel well, maybe it's dangerous for us to, you know, to express our Mexican side in public. Uh, amongst amongst the non-Mexican Americans, as it were, um, and I think that, that that was clearly a product of the uh, president's rhetoric um, uh, in through that campaign. And you know, the president campaigned really, really intensely intensely on this notion of us versus them, on this tribal notion that you know white working class Americans are under threat by others, mm -hmm. and a very prominent group of others happened to be Mexicans. Right. So it Mexican. was actually quite rational. <laughs> right, Mexican rapists, right, according to the Exactly, exactly. So how old was your son at that point? My son was 12 uh, that year. And, uh, you know, so he was aware, you know, he was aware of what was going on. He also, he has journalist parents who've been writing about this stuff. So it was pretty much present in, in in conversations at home about how the American political kind of like system dynamic had turned so sharply, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, into this pretty much stream of racially tinged invective in, in, in which the group to, with which he identified was, was, one, of the, was one of the targets. Mm -hmm. So the other moment that I really 
kept thinking about in the book, and there's so many, there's so much there, um, is this really interesting paradox that surfaces throughout the book. Because you cite a number of studies that seem to suggest that racial diversity isn't maybe all it's cracked up to be or that Americans' responses to it aren't, right? So mm-hmm. like there's a study that says that racial diversity reduces Americans' participation in groups, like civic groups, political groups, sports teams. There's another that says local government spending goes down in more multicultural municipalities. And that seems a little, you know, at first when I read that, I had to go back and read it again because I thought, you know, there's this idea that diversity makes us better, social, more social. Um, And so what do you make of that? Yeah, it is a really very good question. This is a a tension that that is that that I I think about a lot. But yes, there's a lot of economic research that finds and research from sociologists as well and political scientists that finds that what they call ethnic divisions, say lines of race and also of ethnicity and of religion you know, that that can group people into different groups kind of sparks a sort of tribal feeling that makes it very difficult to build what economists call public goods. Public goods is, you know, clean streets and, 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 secure, and secure streets and good infrastructure and good public education, the kind of things that we fund for everybody. Um, um, and that the, the, in diverse communities, there's these things are more are, are less likely to be built. And you can see it from education. There are studies finding that uh, in communities where the, the population of young parents is of a different ethnic group than the population of older folks, the older folk will be less willing to contribute in taxes to the public education system. There's another study that finds that families, uh, that um, white American families would take their kids out of the public school system when young immigrant Latino families arrived in California. Um, there's even studies that in church, in, in Protestant congregations in church, the, you know, the, the, the contribution into the basket every Sunday, as it were, falls as, there, as, as more African Americans join the congregation. So there's evidence across a range of studies about how kind of like this tribal feeling this us versus them sort of feeling stops us, stops generosity, you know, and, and, and therefore kind of like defunds the community, as it were. Well, I want to think about that because, you know, people talk about tribalism um, and very often they attribute it to people of color, ethnic folks. But, you know, it sounds like to me that a lot of the tribalism rests in whiteness. Oh, yeah, right now. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. You hear all this debate over, over identity politics and how it's, it's destroying our discourse and, and how it's attributed all to the left and to people of color. Well, the identity politics that are running, that is running this country today is white identity politics. Right. You know, it's a politics of an entrenched kind of like fearful white majority that I think realizes that it's not going to be a majority for the first time in the history of this country mm-hmm. and is kind of freaking out. Yeah. You know, I had to remind myself reading some of those passages that shared residence in a place doesn't mean harmony or it doesn't mean actual sharing of space, right? Because residential yeah. segregation still thrives in America, oh, even yeah. in its most diverse cities, you know, even in small towns. So even though we theoretically live in close proximity to each other, do we really actually live with each other? 
not so much, right? Yeah, um, I think that's right. I think you're right there. I mean, we had kind of like legal segregation policies that kept communities apart, that prohibited, that that, that barred uh, people of color from buying a home in a, in, a, in, a, in a white community, that would not fund housing in mixed communities. I mean, there was there were actually legal ordinances and laws that to segregate this country. Those laws have kind of like pretty much been overcome. We had the Fair Housing Act, but we have now, what's going on now is we have enormous res uh, income segregation, segregation by income, which we could also call gentrification, right. uh, which I understand that you've done some, some work on. Um, <laughs> and and so, so this, this gentrification is having kind of like a similar effect in segregating communities into white affluent communities and pushing out uh, a lower income people of color away. So we still live in a very, very segregated country. Um, even, you know, whatever, even 50, more than 50 years since the passage of laws that were meant to desegregate it. We live in an enormously segregated country. Right. And even in places that didn't have the whole legal framework of segregation laws, like we did very much in the South, segregation still was possible. And it's so hard to separate income out from race in America, right? When we think yeah. especially about spatial politics and all of those things. So, you know, I was thinking about this too. Um, so much of your book is historical and um, gives us the framework to think about right now, the catastrophe of the now. Um, and so I, as a historian, I often hear a lot of popular references right now to Reconstruction, the period right after the Civil War, when the nation is really hashing out African-American citizenship and who this country will be. We also hear a lot about the New Deal, even though now kind of in reference to the Green New Deal, right? So, um, but I often realize that these references rest on the metaphorical um, mm -hmm. and Americans talk about history, kind of the myths of history, um, but not so much the facts of history very often. And so I'm wondering, how the New Deal, which is something you talk about extensively in this book, showed us both the promise of, of the nation and a nation that could take care of its people, but also how did it default on that promise, particularly for Black and Brown Americans yeah. and also certain types of laborers? Yeah. I mean, the promise of the New Deal is that suddenly, under the Roosevelt administration, uh, um, the government is set off on a task of trying to protect the vulnerable on a massive scale. We're talking about it, we're in the middle of the Great Depression and there was program after program coming from the, from the Roosevelt, from FDR administration to try to, to try to help lift up the people that had been really left destitute and vulnerable by the, by the Great Depression. But at the same time, because racism was still so prevalent in our country, when this kind of like safety net that he started to build which is the, the, the you know the, the 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 original safety net? It's the first. The, he's the first architect of the safety net that we have today. Because before uh, um, the, the the New Deal, there was actually very little in terms of government help for for vulnerable people. Um, he built something that was pretty much limited to whites. I mean, you know, New Deal country was great for white workers, but pretty much exclusively for white workers. Social security uh, um, um, was was limited. 
um, workers on, on farms and workers in households were excluded from Social Security, and it so happened that two-thirds of, of, of black workers worked in either on farms or in households at the time. Um, the Fair Labor Standards Act treated blacks in a different way. Also, in fact, they also excluded these two categories of occupation, which it, where blacks work. Um, there were a variety of, of a very overtly segregated program. The Fair Housing Act, which emerges from there, and which is kind of like the origin of this idea of the American dream of home ownership, really just overtly excluded blacks. It would not, it would not support mortgages for black people or for mixed neighborhoods or, you know, so basically that kind of like prevented uh, um, African American communities from, from entering into the, you know, into the dream of home ownership. So there's policy after policy that were just basically limited to whites. Now, why did he do this? I don't think that FDR was personally racist and wanted to, but he looked at the American political system and he particularly he looked at the Senate and he saw that he needed all these white Southern senators uh, from the Democratic Party to pass his, his legislation. And so he basically did their, did their will and kind of like cut blacks out of, of the New Deal. Right. I mean, and, and why, I mean, even at that moment, you know, since the majority of Black Americans who lived in the South couldn't vote, so there was not even a, a political exactly. constituency argument, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. And, you know, I think about my grandmother who used to say um, in the 70s and 80s when she was getting older, she used to say, I'm trying to figure out what party I'm going to vote for because, you know, the party of Lincoln, which was historically the party of African Americans during Reconstruction, or do I go to for the Democrats because FDR helped save my house, right? Mm -hmm. And so she thought about this transition, this political transition that started occurring right after the New Deal um, that was really interesting and felt pretty fraught about who she was going to cast her lot with, um, which, you know, maybe, you know, some people are having that same discussion now, um, but maybe not in terms of the Republican Party. Um, so, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, one thing I, you know, really thought about too was that, um, and I think about this a lot just in personal relations, but also in looking at our politics writ large. And I told you earlier that I was amazed that so many um, adjectives that had to do with meanness, right? You write about the miserly American state and the state that um, is stingy, um, all of those things. And there's this quote that I really, really love. Um, and so here, here it goes, right? It's Quote, the mix of contempt and resentment across frontiers of religion, race, ethnicity, and citizenship that anchored Trump's seduction of 63 million, 63 million, um, has distorted American politics since the birth of the nation. It defines who we are. And so, you know, this is a, this is a, a question I just had in the back of my mind was, you know, it's meanness, like, in terms of policy, is that the defining quality of American social policy and American political life? I mean, I think that the meanness is 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 a symptom. So, if I if you I would take one step back from meanness and say the the, the main causal force is lack of empathy, is lack of empathy across these lines that you just that you just described in the quote. And if we are unwilling to share the bounty of citizenship, the bounty of government, the bounty of government institutions and freedoms and so forth, um, across these lines, we are going to build a poor nation. And we're going to build a mean nation. And, you know, when I look, when I say mean, I also, you know, you just, 
All you have to do is go and look at, at, at the United States in comparison with other countries that are similarly rich. The U.S. is really rich, by the way. This is a starting point here. We are really, really rich. But then you go and you look at you compare to other rich countries, probably not even as rich as we are, and fewer babies die, life expectancies are longer, mothers, fewer mothers die at birth. I mean, you know, there's statistic after statistic, outcome after outcome. We are really at the bottom of the barrel. And, and you know, just look at what's happening with COVID in this country compared to pretty much any other country in the world. Problem is we happen to face a public health uh, crisis with probably the worst public health system amongst industrialized countries. And so I think, I mean, I think miserly is a really good word for that because we've just been unwilling to build these things. And why were we unwilling to build these things? Because we didn't want to share them with people of color. Basically, that's, I mean, in a nutshell, that's the entire book. I, I think about this, too, because I do reproductive health work, and you do talk about the maternal mortality rate in the United States. So the number of people who give birth and are seriously injured or die or their children die. I mean, for Black women and Latinas and Native women, those numbers are through the roof. And particularly for Black women, nothing can get those nothing can get those numbers down. I mean, you can be the most educated black woman. I'm a black woman with a PhD. I have health insurance. I have, you know, consistent employment, um, high income, like all those things that tend to make a difference in other people's health outcomes don't make a difference in mine if I go to deliver in a hospital, right? And so what is the missing ingredient there? I mean, it, it's pretty obvious that much of it is the racism that's based into our healthcare system and our society. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they look at you as a black woman and there's the odds that there is some contempt, hostility, fear, mistrust in that gaze is going to presumably affect your care. Right. Uh, but all these other indicators are also important. I mean, you know, if you look at the, 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 the you know, if you look at our infant mortality rate, which is particularly high compared to other rich countries, it is the kids of low income women, often women of color, but not exclusively women of color. That, and so, you know, a more robust public health insurance system that didn't leave like at least 30 million people uninsured would probably go some way in reducing these numbers, you know? Probably, right? Yeah. Uh so, you know, that's the thing. So we've resisted universal health care in this country. And, you know, the ACA is perpetually under siege. And so what, you know, what's the future of, you know, a, a more, I don't want to say kinder and gentler, but what's the future of, you know, the American welfare state? And by welfare state here, like, I'm not talking about, you know, welfare as we know it popularly, you know, with the idea that it's, you know, Black women who are, pulling food stamps, but driving Cadillacs at the same time. I'm talking about a country that recognizes that we all benefit from certain, as you say, public goods, right? Public education, social security, you know, not the stigmatizing and distorted view of, you know, people who are moochers and takers. Yeah. What's the future of this? Well, I mean, just to start, that stigmatization of the word welfare, um, it was part of a political strategy, essentially to defund the social safety net, right? I mean, it's not... There's nothing wrong with the idea of welfare. In fact, I think welfare should be a goal that we would any society would be for pursuing. But somehow here it got you know weaponized to basically uh, reduce uh, public generosity uh, um, for its marginalized population, its poor, its needy. But going to your question, um, 
you look at the, you know, you look at the ACA, which is the first big effort to expand the safety net since the war on poverty, since the administration of Lyndon Johnson. And, you know, just the fate of that program is enough to get you depressed. I mean, it, I, I, it was a, a really, it would have, it was a really, the idea of basically getting close to universal insurance is a fantastic idea. Um, and the fact that it got through the Congress with not a single, uh, uh, without Republican support, let's put it that way, um, um, was, I think, amazing, astonishing, something that we hadn't done in 50 years. But it's an extremely vulnerable program. It's been chipped at and attacked in court. And it's, as we speak, it is still being attacked in court. And so, you know, the, 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 um, um, uh, and and the the odds that it will survive in any form like President Obama originally conceived are in fact very low, and and some of the best aspects of it are the things that have been most easily targeted. Basically, the expansion of Medicaid, which was like the most immediate, uh, robust uh, improvement of the system. There's a bunch of states that never accepted it, and a bunch of other states that are now trying to put working conditions on being able to get Medicaid in any case that will basically call people from the Medicaid world. So that really does not inspire a lot of confidence that the United States can get the political, you know, sort of like the political consensus to expand the safety net to add like childcare or paid sick leave or frankly. So I don't know what it takes, but it takes some really kind of like fundamental shift, I think, in our thinking. So, you know, you talked about the war on poverty and um, I'm largely a like 1880s to 1930s um, historian, <laughs> but I, I look at the war on poverty as such a critical turning point because we do see infusions of, you know, uh, national capital in places in the United States. But we also see, I think, a little bit of a bifurcation of like the impoverished, or at least how we think about them, right? So we see suddenly poverty in some ways takes a very black face, but on the other hand, it also, if you look at, you know, LBJ and, you know, other folks in his administration going to Appalachia, that there is the articulation, uh, more public, stronger articulation of the white working class and the white poor. And so there's something going on there about the ways in which we racialize poverty that um, is with us and lives in this moment, particularly when we see a very politicized white anger coming from some of those places that mm -hmm. we associate it with Appalachian or white rural poverty. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very interesting. So I think thinking in, 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 in great arcs, um, I would I would say I would start with okay so in the the in the the Great Recession the New Deal kind of establishes the basis for the social safety apparatus writ large and it is mostly mostly reserved many of these programs are are originally reserved for whites they're segregated from the outset some of them are not not all of them are exclusively to whites so the, the AFDC is is available for 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 uh, mothers with children and, and mothers of colors can, can avail themselves of this program. But the, in general, the, 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 the programs that come out of the New Deal are pretty much limited to whites. Lyndon Johnson kind of like, he, one of his efforts is to open them up to non-whites too. And the way that I kind of like, again, reading it in very, very broad strokes is once that happens, support for the safety net 
all of it kind of like collapses. And that's where we get the change in the rhetoric that racializes that poverty, that associates welfare with corruption, um, and that imputes a bunch of bad behaviors to people who are on government assistance, and as a political strategy to basically erode away the government programs, to defund them. And, um, um, and, and, and the, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the moment that people of colors can suddenly, yeah, let's, let's we can we can participate in the in the bounty of of, of America and, and these institutions. Well, then these we're, these institutions are going to be left to shrivel. And the other and the institution that then becomes very very robust, starting right around then, is the criminal justice system, because we start putting a ton of money in that one. Uh, so even as you know, we the rhetoric about welfare starts revolving around welfare queens who are corrupt and undeserving, about single moms who are just you know taking the the, the check from the government and hence not going not not getting a job. All that stuff is happening at the same time that we're as as there's this 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 parallel discourse about our streets being under siege again by people of color mostly. Right. And so the criminal justice system becomes the tool to manage our society. So like it's it's it, it seems to me like a very uh, it, kind of like a crazy conclusion to take let's defund the things that improve people's well-being and fund this thing that locks them away because we're going to call them dangerous. Mm -hmm. And it it, it fits really well. Yeah, right. It's it's so interesting that the kind of end of the modern civil rights movement really coincides with the growth of mass incarceration, the like really skyrocketing growth, even though we've always incarcerated many people in this country, right? Um, so, you know, I'm wondering too, I mean, because we're talking about the failure of um, solidarity, um, Americans to form solidarities with each other. And we're thinking mostly about um, white Americans' failure to feel some kind of human bond with people um, who don't look like them and people outside their immediate networks, outside their home, their neighborhood, their school, those places that matter to them. And so I'm also wondering if part of this is that like ideas of work and the American worker have changed too, Eduardo, that, you know, do most Americans think of themselves as laborers and not necessarily in the sense of um, organized labor, but I'm wondering if the nature of work and then, of course, wealth accumulation and all those things has changed. And, you know, even though we all, most of us work, um, somehow we don't have an identity as workers. And that also ties into the identity, kind of identity crisis around us not forming bond with each other and caring about our fellow man. It's mm. an interesting question. I'm, I, I'm, let's see if I can, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm not sure how good my answer is going to be, but mm -hmm. there has been in the last, you know, roughly in the period since since the movement for civil rights, or maybe a little later, since the 1970s, there has been a really vast change in the world of work in the United States. A big polarization in the world, kind of like the middle fell out of the labor market. And so the kind of like decent, well-paid jobs that didn't require you to have a four-year college degree or more, but that paid enough to support a family, a lot of that has gone away. And mm -hmm. so we've had the world of work has been bifurcated. And that's one of the you know, causes of rising income inequality in the United States. That's not the only, but one of the reasons. And so I do think that there is, I think that that has 
created a set that has sort of like accentuated feelings of resentment on those on the losing side of that change, right? The folks that had the middle income factory job and who now can only like get a job at 7-Eleven, you know, when they're in their 50s and, you know, there's no job security, very low wage, no benefits. So I do think that there is some resentment at how the, the economy changed. And, and so that, that I think will accentuate the, the, the sense that something unfair has happened. And that's something, on, and, and, and scapegoating, as, as, as you know, is a fairly common kind of response to situations like this. And so I would not be surprised if this greater economic stress and strain that a lot of, you know, um, um, blue collar workers on the wrong side of these labor market changes, would they would direct some of their, their anger against, you know, moochers of color who are, you know, are abusing uh, their, their hard-earned taxpayer dollars. And um, so just, to, just go, to go back to, to something that you mentioned a moment ago about, you know, Appalachia and, and white poverty in places like that. I was in Appalachia a couple of years ago in, in Harlan County in Kentucky. And this is a place that is absolutely white. I mean, the white non-Hispanic population is like 97% of the population. Um, it is extremely poor. I went there because it is one of only about a dozen counties in the entire United States where the feds, federal programs, amount to more than half of income of the people there uh, on average. You know, food stamps, Social Security, uh, that kind of stuff. And their economy is really in deep trouble. I mean, it's been stagnant for years and years and years and years. And I was at a, I was at a town hall with uh, Governor Matt Bevin, who was governor at the time. He was like this Tea Party guy, you know, really anti-government. And what, I, what amazed me was you're there and, and suddenly there's these rounds of applause, this standing ovation when he goes up and starts talking about how we should attach more work requirements to the safety net because so that it's not abused. And I was thinking, well, guys, you're the people that are actually consuming these services. You need this stuff. So what's going on? And underlying this, there is a sense that there's an other, an, some other out there that's really abusing this. So even though I really need it, I, what's front of mind for me is this thought that there's that, of, of the other that's taking. Um, and it's amazing, amazingly powerful because, you know, th this, this county, as in much of Kentucky, has consistently voted for, uh, for politicians who have taken their acts to the safety net. Yeah, I mean, so there's this, there's this perpetual tension, right? Um, with who is, I mean, we all are benefiting from the social safety net in some way, right? Um, mm -hmm. When you get certain tax credits. Um, yeah. No, all of those things, right? Um, but yeah. we typically have a very um, inaccurate view of who's benefiting the most. And, you know, it, it's interesting when we think about how people see their interests, right? And so, you know, I'm wondering about, mm -hmm. we know that Trump voters tended to be in from very homogenous places, right? Um, and sometimes mm -hmm. very rural places. And so how do we, if rural and 
people who live in places where almost everyone's like them um, have ushered in part of this, you know, this political regime, how do we engage rural folks and those folks in thinking about a way forward, a different way forward? Yeah. I know that's a hard question. Yeah, no, and I, I, I worry about rural America. I wrote a, a big piece about a year ago uh, in which, you know, just looking through the stats, I found very little basis for hope. You know, it's part of the country that's becoming, that is that is lagging in economic opportunity, is getting old, is losing people. Um, you know, it's, I mean, by, by depends on the definition of what rural is, but by a standard, look at the census data, it's about 50 million people that are, you know, stuck in these really impoverished places where, kind of like the last business standing is the hospital that's kept standing because it gets Medicaid and Medicare money from the feds and so employs some people. Um, but, and these places are becoming redder and redder, more and more Republican as they become, you know, more and more dissatisfied with their opportunities. And as you said, they are very homogeneous. Now, to me, that's something that we should really, really worry about that, you know, because in this whole story of political polarization that we've all heard about, this is another margin of polarization that could actually really poison our politics for a very long time. I'm thinking, you know, what have, we have a, a, a blue urban America and a solid red uh, small town and rural urban America that cannot, cannot tolerate each other's views seems to be not a fabulous outcome. Now, how do you deal with that? We were, as we were talking earlier, you were mentioning that there is migration out from cities into smaller cities. Um, and I'm not sure, maybe also even into small town America. Mm -hmm. And that might be a, a, an, interesting, a, an interesting mechanism to look at because in fact, as cities have become so expensive and as opportunities in cities have actually begun to disappear for you know, people that are not like super well-educated and get the, you know, the, the Facebook salaries, the, a lot of folks are deciding to leave these big places like the New Yorks and the Silicon Valleys and the Seattles. We were talking about uh, the prospects for rural America. And, you know, I mean, I think as somebody who has roots in rural America and I live, you know, outside, you know, the coastal, you know, the coastal metropoles, right? Um, that I don't want to think that rural America is, you know, the problem. I think that rural America is actually a place of great promise, right? And if we look at migration, I don't want to also suggest that it's just changing because people are coming in, but, you know, rural America is changing. You know, if I look at North Carolina, where I live, you know, between the 1990 and 2000 census, our Latinx population went up 396%, which is an amazing kind of seismic shift in many ways, whether we're talking about the workforce or we're talking about culture, um, or we're talking about, let's say, black and brown solidarity. Um, there's a lot going on that, you know, kind of points some and sometimes sometimes in a different direction about the polarization of America. Because I think about, for instance, black activists who I know in the South who have been very active in pushing back against ICE and deportations, right? So there's a lot there. And so I'm just wondering, I know we have... I have a couple more questions for you, um, but I'm wondering if we could go back and talk a little bit about something you mentioned earlier, Eduardo, which was this idea of kind of a demographic fear. 
that mm-hmm. seems to be at play. And, mm-hmm. you know, we talked earlier and about like, you know, those magazines, Time magazine about in the 90s where they had these pictures of the browning of America. And, you know, there was some feeling about that and that probably stoked some xenophobia that we are seeing just come into being in in new, more vocal ways, not to suggest that xenophobia has not been a part of American life. But I'm wondering if you could talk about like this this continuing latent and sometimes very public fear of, you know, an America that looks very Latinx, that looks very Black, that looks very Asian American, and looks decreasingly less white. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very important point, and I think it's really important defining the politics of our moment now. Um, um, so yeah, I remember. I remember what you were saying. I remember there was this book called *The Emerging Democratic Majority* that came around the year 2000 by this political scientist Ritishira, and he was basically arguing that because of demographic change, with a rising share of people of population of color, uh, um, there would be this would turn the, the political tide in this country into a solid democratic uh, voting base because you know people of color tend to vote democratic more. Uh, and yet, of course, it didn't happen, or it at least that hasn't happened yet. And I think that the a little bit of the, the what's, instead of that happening, what's happening is, well, between that, the now of that book happening and the then of when, you know, people of color are going to have true political power in this country, there is this moment in which, you know, the people who hold political power now, who are whites, look out the window, see this coming down the pike, and try to stop it. And so I think I read a lot of the gerrymandering efforts, the efforts to pack the courts, the efforts to suppress the vote of African-Americans. I read a lot of that in this context as, an, as a really an effort to stop a tide that is inevitable. You know, democracy is, democracy is one of these things that just moves slowly but surely. And... Um, and so, you know, the, the Republican Party, even, you know, after the 2012 elections, the defeat of Mitt Romney, they came out with this document that kind of acknowledged we cannot be the party of old white people if we want to continue governing this country. And I think that document was exactly right. And yet somehow uh, in 2016, they went exactly in the opposite direction. And Donald Trump, I think he saw, I don't know if this was coincidence or he's really very shrewd, but he saw that there's a constituency there that is that fears this change and that is enough to win an election. Right. And so I think that's what he deployed uh, um, um, effectively. You call him a political entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah, he's a political entrepreneur, and and as many political entrepreneurs, he's an opportunist, and he sensed an opportunity and took it. Um, Yeah, so I have two last questions. And so one is probably like, you know, the doomsday question, and one is the let's end on a positive note question, right? Um, And so how will systemic racism, structural racism, and inequality impact our recovery from this current pandemic moment. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is really, that is a, a very, very powerful kind of thought here. And I would say my guess is that it will hinder our recovery more than a guess. Um, it's, you know, you look at the data. Um, you can see, so for instance, in just nine days, hi, cat. In just nine days, oh, okay, I had to get the, get him so he was. Shot. 
<laughs> um, the, the provisions that expanded unemployment insurance uh, passed early in the pandemic are due to expire. And you know, who knows what's gonna happen. And, and these have been extremely important provisions. They have kept, I mean, we've had like tens of millions of people filing for unemployment and the poverty rate in it's, this is kind of like unimaginably has not risen. But those provisions are about to expire. And I do wonder, I, you know, these, and anything can happen in Washington when things get down to the wire, but I do fear that they will not be renewed. And if they are not renewed, I would expect to see an immense spike in poverty, deprivation, destitution, some really horrible things happening. Um, and, you know, you, you hear the arguments out of D.C. that, well, no, it's enough is enough. Um, we've done what we needed. Our economies are going to, we want to reopen our economies. Um, and so the debate now is about giving, uh, giving tax breaks on payroll taxes to businesses. And so, and, and I see that's firmly embedded in the same kind of policymaking that we've been talking about that took place like since the Nixon administration at least, where, you know, helping the vulnerable is considered like a second order problem. And, mm. and, 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 and so I could see that this, this same sort of ideology getting in the way of really responding it properly to this to this pandemic. I mean, you can already see it in the way that our systems were already in place. I mean, we happen to be the only country, only rich country, that didn't have statutory paid leave or uh, um, um, uh, uh, statutory sick leave, or uh, statutory childcare uh, uh, payments, you know, things that would have helped people that suddenly were in a pickle because their kid's school has closed and they had to work and so on. These things are pretty much the norm in many places. We just haven't built them. And we were the only rich country that happened to go into this thing with 27 million people without health insurance, which is, again, I would consider that insane. Um, but so I do, I do believe that the sort of like the institutional failures uh, that are produced by this racial hostility are really, really getting in the way of us dealing with this pandemic and, and you know, getting our society and our economy back on its feet. Mm. So all that being said, like the crush of history and policy that has helped some and excluded others, like what gives you hope in this moment? Oh, yeah, I know that's a big wrap-up question. It's a big right? one, yeah. Well, so, so, so here's a, a little anecdote. You know, when I was in the process of writing this book, you know, I had lunch with my publisher one day, and he said, you know what? These books sell a lot better if you offer hope at the end. So you want to make sure to put something in there that gives people a reason to look forward, that you know, gives them a sense of, of opportunity, hope. And so I sat down there, you know, writing that last chapter, and I I really tried, you know, I really tried. And then when I delivered the book, the guy read it and he said, Okay, you tried. But no. And uh, and that's I mean that's I think Part of what's happening is that I'm writing it in a very fraught political moment, and I'm choosing my words very carefully here, but this political moment really doesn't justify enormous optimism. 
But but given that you're asking me for causes for hope, for reasons that I, that might support optimist, a more optimistic take, and I would go back. I would go back to this notion of changing demography. I do think that when this is a country where more people are of all sorts of things, where, where it's not, where there's not this like group that defines itself as the mainstream and defines everybody else as not the mainstream, uh, becomes not the majority of the population, that will help us build a notion of an American that includes really everybody, that includes all of us you know, without having to, you know, caveat it and, 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 and that, so, so I do think that, and, and I also think, I, I, I note your comment on, on rural America, but I do think that this is going to be mostly an urban phenomenon, because I do think that in ur urban America is where young people, white and of color, Latinos and blacks are going to actually meet each other more and live together, hopefully go to school together. And, and I think that these kind of like small scale uh, um, uh, efforts of integration are our best, our best opportunity to build a, a, a more inclusive sense of who we are as a country. I don't really have a lot of trust in the feds, in federal policy, it's the cities in which we live. And so if you, what policies I think are important, I think like housing policy is critically important. Uh, school integration policies are critically important and we've stopped, we've literally stopped trying with um, um, uh, school, uh, school integration policies while uh, uh, residential integration policies are very, very spotty and, and, and I would say very weak. But I think that those are two possible avenues for, for, for policy intervention and to kind of like take advantage of what, when people live together, you see the person, you don't see the person as a representation of a class. I think. So this is the tension that you referred to at the very beginning of our conversation. How is it that in these diverse polities, uh, uh, people are stingier, people are less willing to put into the public pot? Uh, whereas I think that's true. I do really kind of think that the, the only out from that is creating a really, a really mixed pot. Um, a really mixed pot where the experiences of, where, where we can see the experiences of, of of others and consider them similar, you know, consider them kind of like part of our own normality somehow. Mm. Wow. I mean, it's yeah. a little kumbaya, I'm sorry, but at the end, you know. No. I mean, a little kumbaya sometimes is not out of place and, and I think maybe we need it sometime. Um, but thank you so much. I think we're gonna have to close here today. Thank you, Eduardo. Thank all of you for listening. And this talk is gonna be on Zocalo's website and podcast, you know, by tomorrow. And I hope that we can continue this conversation um, in different venues. And I hope you all will check out the book. Thank you. I would love you, Cynthia. Thanks a lot. It was great to talk to you. Thank you, yeah, everybody. It was fabulous. Bye. Bye now. <laughs>